Chapter 3, Volume 1 of The Mummy, A Tale of the 22nd Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sally J. The Mummy, A Tale of the 22nd Century by Jane Loudon. Chapter 3, Volume 1. "'My dear Edric,' exclaimed Sir Ambrose, throwing himself into the arms of his son. "'My dear, dear Edric, your brother has gained the battle. The Germans are completely overthrown. He has taken their king and several of their princes prisoners, and the fine province of France is cededly to us entirely.' "'I am rejoiced to hear it,' cried Edric, returning his father's embrace with emotion. "'And he, I hope, is safe?' i hope so too replied sir ambrose though he says nothing of himself but you know edmund our troops won this our army gained that the soldiers fought bravely he never speaks of himself to hear him relate a battle nobody would imagine he had ever had anything to do with it it is too dark for me to see any more said father morris who during this conversation had been watching the telegraph and now turned from it in despair the machine is still in motion, but it is too dark for me to decipher what it means. The attention of all present was directed to the sky as he spoke. It was indeed become of a pitchy blackness. A general gloom seemed to hang over the face of nature. The birds flew twittering from shelter. A low wind moaned through the trees, and in short, everything seemed to pretend a storm. Had we not better return to the house? said Dr. Endorphin looking around with something like fear of these alarming indications, for his heated imagination had not yet quite recovered the effect of the awful speculations in which he had been so lately indulging. What is that black spot over there? I declare it moves! Good heavens! What can it be? Really, doctor, returned Abelard, you provoke the action of my risable faculties. That opaque body which you perceive at a little distance, and which seems to have occasioned such a fearful excitement of your nervous system, is only a living specimen of the corvus genus who has probably descended upon earth to scratch this vermicular repast. I beg your pardon, Mr. Ebelard, rejoined Mr. Davis, speaking with his usual precision, but according to my humble apprehension, your labor under a slight mistake as to that particular. The feathered biped that has so forcibly attracted your attention appears to me not one of the corvi, but rather one of the gratuli, a variety of extremely rare occurrence in this vicinity, and which are sometimes called incendiae ivis, from their unfortunate propensity to put habitations into combustion by picking up small pieces of phlogisticated carbon and carrying them in their beaks to the combination of straw and other materials sometimes piled upon the apex of a house, to defend it from the inroads of pluviosity. It is of no use, sighed Sir Ambrose, still straining his eyes to endeavor to decipher the movements of the telegraph, the outlines of which now only appeared, stamped as if in jet and strongly relieved by the dark gray sky beyond. It is of no use, reiterated Father Morris, and the whole party were preparing to retire, when suddenly a vivid light flashed upon them from the hill, 
and instantly a long line of torches seemed to stream along the horizon. He is coming home, but will write more tomorrow, exclaimed the whole party simultaneously, for all knew well by experience the meaning of that signal. He is coming home, thank God, repeated Sir Ambrose, his pallid lips quivering and every limb trembling with agitation. Look to my father, cried Edric. He will faint. Oh, no, no, repeated Sir Ambrose. Thank God, thank God. Lean upon me at least, said Edric affectionately. Sir Ambrose complied and, supported by his son, gazed anxiously on the torches, the red glare of which, by shedding an unnatural light around them, made the surrounding darkness only appear more intense. Thunder now growled in the distance, and rain began to fall in large drops. Yet still, Sir Ambrose stood, with his eyes fixed upon the torches, and no persuasions could induce him to leave the terrace. These wild, fearful-looking lights, gleaming through the tempest, seemed a connecting link between him and his darling son. And it was not till they were obscured by a thick, heavy rain, and even in the outline of the telegraph vanished in the gathering clouds around, that he could be induced to seek for shelter. Sir Ambrose slept little that night. The sleep of his age easily broken, and perhaps the joyful agitation of his spirits had produced a slight access of fever. He rose at the dawn, and long before the rest of his family had descended, summoned Abelard, that he might dispatch him to inform the Duke of Cornwall of the news, as Father Morris, on account of the storm, had passed the night at the house of Sir Ambrose. Go, said he, as soon as the drowsy butler had made his appearance. I am sure the duke feels nearly as great an interest in the success of Edmund as myself, and will not be displeased if he is disturbed a little earlier than usual upon such an occasion. I obey, replied Abelard. I will shake off my somnolent propensities, and speed with the velocity of the electric fluid to the castle of the noble chieftain. Take heed you do not forget your message, by the way repeated Sir Ambrose, smiling. Not all the waters of Letha could wash such significant tidings from my memory, replied the butler. Your honor's words are imprinted upon the mnemonic organ of my brain, and my sensorium must be divided from my cerebellum ere they can be effaced. The Duke of Cornwall had been an intimate friend of Sir Ambrose almost from infancy. They had been companions at school and at college, besides which, peculiar circumstances which had happened in their youth, had linked them together in indissoluble in ties. What these circumstances were, however, no one exactly knew except the parties concerned, and they always avoided alluding to them. All that was generally understood upon the subject being that Sir Ambrose had, in some manner, been instrumental in saving the Duke's life, but how, when, or where was never clearly explained." The Duke of Cornwall was of the royal family of England, and closely allied to the throne. His father had been the brother to that prince who had so steadfastly refused the crown when it was offered to him by the ambassadors from the people. And as that prince had left no male descendants, the duke might be considered as legitimately entitled to reign. The thought of disturbing by his claims the female dynasty now established had, however, never entered into his mind. For having taken into his head that he would marry his daughter Elvira to Edmund Montagu, and his niece Rosabella to Edric, 
he turned all his thoughts, plans, and wishes to the accomplishment of his object and suffered no other idea to interfere with it. Like most persons living in complete retirement, the Duke was exceedingly fond of petty mysteries and needless maneuvers, and he wasted as much iniquity as many contrivances over this scheme as might, if differently applied, have sufficed to overturn a kingdom. It was true. The interest of the plot was somewhat spoiled by the fear that the instant he made known his intentions, everyone would be delighted to comply with them. Yet, still as long as it was kept secret, it was a plot, and it was the best the duke could muster. He resolved to make the most of it. For this purpose, he had made Father Morris his confidant, and held long private conferences every day with him upon the subject. The duke was now completely happy. He had not only something to plan and something to think about, but he had also had someone to oppose for Father Morris's opinions as to the dispositions of young people was diametrically opposite to his own. He thinking the strong mind and haughty spirit of Rosabella better suited to the ambitious Edmund, whilst the soft yielding disposition and feminine graces of Elvira seemed to harmonize exactly with the taste of the philosophic Edric. No persuasions, however, could induce the Duke to deviate in the slightest degree from his design. Like many of the higher classes of society in the days of universal education, he affected an excessive plainness and simplicity in his language, so much so, indeed, as sometimes almost to degenerate into rudeness, in order that it might be clearly distinguished from the elaborate and scientific expressions of the vulgar, and when urged by his confessor upon the subject of these intended marriages, he would roughly say, Don't talk to me! There is nothing like a little contradiction in the married life. If two people were to live together, who were always of the same opinion, they would die of ennui in six months. No, no, I'm right. And so they'll find it in the end. He would then shake his head and put on such a look of positive determination that Father Morris would generally retire in silence, feeling it perfectly in vain to attempt to alter his resolution. As to consulting the inclinations of the young people themselves, the idea never entered his imagination. Children don't know what is good for them, he would reply sharply, if such a thought were suggested to him, and it is the duty of the parents and guardians to decide in such matters. The duke had already risen and was in his garden when the messenger of Sir Ambrose arrived, panting for breath, and quite exhausted by the velocity, as he expressed it, which he had employed in endeavouring to execute with the utmost expedition the wishes of his master. The duke was surprised to see him. "'What brings you out so early, Abelard?' demanded he. "'Oh, your grace,' replied the butler, gasping for utterance. "'The haste I have made has impeded my respiration.' and the blood, finding the pulmonary artery free, rushes with such force along the arterial canal to the aorta that, that I am in imminent danger of being suffocated. Psh, said the duke. Besides, continued Abelard, a saline secretion distills from my every pore of my skin in a serious transudation from the excessive exertions I have made use of. And what has occasioned these violent exertions? The earnest desire experienced by Sir Ambrose to transmit with all expedition possible to your grace the intelligence that he had just received from the acquisition of a victory by Master Edmund in the hostile territory of Germany. Victory, 
shouted the duke. Victory! Rosabella! Elvira! Where are you, girls? Here's tidings to rouse you from your slumbers. And how is he, Abelard? Is the brave boy safe himself? God bless him! Victory will be nothing to us if we are to lose him. It occasions me excessive jargon, replied Abelard, that I am totally unable to resolve that integratory to your grace's complete satisfaction. Taciturnity, however, upon some subject is, I believe, generally considered synonymous with prosperity, and, as Master Edmund, to the best of my credence, conveyed no information relative to his sanity in the communication made by him to his paternal ancestor. I humbly opine that there are no reasonable grounds for supposing it has suffered any material deterioration in consequence of the late sanguinary encounter in which he had been engaged. The duke had not patience to wait the conclusion of this speech, but hobbled away as fast as his infirmities would permit, vociferating for Elvira and Rosabella in a voice that might have silenced Stentor. And Abelard, finding himself alone, was fain to his example, marveling as he went along at the excessive impatience and fiery spirits of age, which would not permit people to remain stationary, even to hear what he called a compendious replication to the very questions which they themselves had propounded. Whatever faults might fail to share of the Duke of Cornwall, that of a cold heart was certainly not amongst the number, and the delight he felt on hearing of Edmund's triumph could not have been greater if the youthful hero had been his own son. His eyes, indeed, absolutely sparkled with transport when he communicated the intelligence to his niece and daughter, and his tidings were not bestowed upon insensible ears, for the breasts of both his youthful auditors throbbed with pleasure at the news. Elvira had been the idol of Edmund's homage from her childhood, and she fancied she returned his passion with equal fervor. But she deceived herself, and love was as yet a stranger to her heart. Endowed with a great beauty and superior talents, accustomed from her earliest infancy to be worshipped by all around her, surrounded by flatterers, till even flattery had lost its charm, Elvira had yet never loved. Why she had not, we leave to the philosophers to explain. We merely state facts and leave the others to draw conclusions. Rosabella's character was much more easy to decipher than that of her cousin. Passion was the essence of her existence, and her dark eyes flashed a fire that bestoke an intensity of her feelings. She loved Edmund, but though she loved him with all that overwhelming violence, which only a soul like hers could feel, yet she would not have scrupled to sacrifice even him to her revenge, if she had thought he had treated her with neglect or contempt. She scorned the opinion of the world, and regarded mankind in general, but as slaves, whom she had honored by trampling beneath her feet. Ambition was leading her passion, and even her love for Edmund struggled in vain for mastery against it. This feeling was how highly gratified by the tidings of Edmund's victory. She triumphed in his glory, and a deeper glow burnt upon her cheek from the proud consciousness she felt that she had not placed her affections upon an unworthy object. "'We have no time to lose, girls,' said the Duke. "'I would not miss being with Sir Ambrose when he receives this letter for the kingdom's. Here, Hippolyte, Augustus, get a balloon ready. Let us be off directly. How tedious these fellows are. They might have removed a church and steeple in the time they have wasted about a balloon. 
If your grace would have a moment, patience, said the Hippolyte, holding the cords of the balloon. But his grace had no patience. It was an ingredient nature that had quite forgotten to put into his composition. And, without waiting for an ascending ladder to be put down, he sprang into the car in such haste, the moment the balloon was brought to the door, that he was in imminent danger of oversetting it. So, so, he said, very well, that will do. And now, girls, that you are safely embarked, we will be off. Hippolyte, will you steer us? And Abelard, go into the buttery and let my fellows give you something to eat. You will want something after your fatigues. There, there, that will do. Don't let us hinder a moment. And the rest of his speech was lost in the air as the balloon floated majestically away. It has often appeared very astonishing to me, said Abelard, after watching the balloon till it was out of sight, to observe how partial great people are generally to an aerial mode of traveling. For my part, I think the pedestrian manner infinitely more agreeable. De gustibus non est disputandum, replied Augustus, the duke's footman, to whom this observation was addressed. But I think I observe symptoms of lassitude about you, Mr. Abelard. Will you not adjourn to the apartment of Mrs. Russell, our housekeeper, to repair, by some elementary refreshment, the excessive exhaustion you have sustained in the course of your morning exertions? Willingly, Mr. Augustus, I own candidly, I feel I want of a little wholesome nutrition. I shall, besides, be extremely happy to avail myself of the opportunity fortune so benignantly presents of paying my respect to Mrs. Russell, whom I have not seen in three, three days. The worthy housekeeper was equally rejoiced with Abelard at this instant of fortune's benignity, a sort of sentimental flirtation having been going on between them for at least thirty years. She accordingly stroked down her snow-white apron, readjusted her mob-cape, and smoothed her gray hairs, which were divided upon her forehead with the most scrupulous exactness, before she advanced to welcome her visitor. "'What will you take, my dear Abelard?' she said, as soon as he was within hearing. "'What can you fancy?' "'I have a delicious corner of cold venison pasty in the pantry.' Words are altogether too feeble to express the transports of my gratitude at receiving so gracious an accolade, beautitious Eloisa, replied the romantic butler, for thus an allusion to his own name was he wont to call her. But though you had only the rigors of the paraclete to invite to me, instead of the comforts of your well-stored pantry, still would words be wanting to express the feelings of my bosom thus again beholding you. Spare my blushes, said Mrs. Russell, casting her eyes upon the ground, and playing with the corner of her apron. I feel a rosate sufficient glow upon my cheeks as your flattering accents strike upon the tympanium of my auricular organs. Oh, Mrs. Russell, sighed Abelard, gazing upon her tenderly, and then, after a short pause, he continued. As to the ailments with which your provident kindness would solage my appetite, though venison be a wholesome viand and was reckoned by the ancients officious in preventing fevers and though the very mention of the savoury paste makes my epite usually employed in secreting the mucus of my tongue erect themselves thereby occasioning an overflow of the saliva yet i will deny myself the indulgence and content myself simply with a boiled egg as being more likely to agree with the present enfeebled state of the digestive organs of my stomach you shall have it instantly cried mrs russell and will you have the kindness to superintend the culinary arrangement of it yourself rejoined abelard 
I do not like the albumen too much coagulated, and I prefer it without any betracious oil, simply flavored by the addition of a small quantity of common muriate of soda. The egg was soon prepared and devoured. Thank you, thank you, dear Mrs. Russell, said Abelard. This refraction was most acceptable, and I had felt for some time the gastric juice corroding the coats of my stomach, and still, though I have now given it some solid substance to act upon, I think it would be amiss to dilute its very virulence with the addition of a little fluid. Have you anything cool and refreshing? I have some bottled beer, replied Mrs. Russell, but I am afraid the carbonic acid gas has not been sufficiently disengaged during the process of the venous fermentation to render it wholesome. And there is scarcely any alcohol in the whole composition. That is exactly what I want, said Abelard, for my physicians have expressively forbidden stimulants. Provided the gluten that forms a germ was properly separated in the preparation of the malt, and the seeds sufficiently germinated to cover the fescula into sugar, I shall be perfectly satisfied. I can guarantee the accuracy of its preparation both with regard to the malt and the beer, repeated Mrs. Russell. And the frothing liquid soon sparkled in a goblet, to the infinite satisfaction of the thirsty butler, who after a hearty drought vowed nectar itself was never half so delicious and that all the gods on olympus would envy him if they could but taste his fare and see the blooming hebe that was his cup-bearer chapter three volume one